Well, Herman, we ready to go? Okay. Well, good morning, everyone. This morning, we're coming to the crescendo of our study in the tabernacle as we have been progressing from being outside the tabernacle. Remember, we were once outside the commonwealth of God. We were once aliens. We were once enemies. We were once in darkness. We were once sin. And we have been traveling through the process, if you would, that God established as a result of sin in order to be able to maintain his original creational purpose of having a people with whom he would have experience and joy, eternal fellowship, they with him, he with them. And we remember when we say God determined the solution to how to maintain this fellowship, we're not talking about Genesis 3:26, and he ate, Adam ate, and all of a sudden God has to run back to his planning room, open the charts, and rewrite things. What we have here is a God of eternal sovereign decree. And whatever happens, he knows it beforehand, right? But why does he know it beforehand? Well, some would say, well, he knows beforehand what you would do if this happened or that happened, therefore. Well, that's true in a sense, but that's not the reason for his sovereign knowledge. His sovereign knowledge is the result of his sovereign decree. He decrees it, therefore he knows it. For what God decrees, he does. What he decrees happens. Now, I realize as I say that, that brings up 22 million questions. But you see, here is the decision. Either God is a God of absolute, comprehensive, everlasting, sovereign decree, or he's a God who has created and is allowing things to happen, and he's catching up with them, and He's kind of mending them as we go along. Now, even though he is a God of decree, questions it creates questions in my mind. I would rather, and it's a good thing because this is how he is, I would rather a God who decrees because I can trust him rather than a God who is trying to or catching up with or doing whatever, putting Humpty Dumpty back together again. And so when we see what's going on in the world, we look at this and we say, you know, how can God, how can God, where's God? Let me give you this scripture as the answer. This scripture summarizes and gives you the answer to all those. How, where, what, Johnny, what happened, right? Why did God, when did God, how did God? Here's the scripture that answers all these questions. Deuteronomy 29, 29. You just look it up. Look it up. That's the, that's the scripture that will answer every one of those questions that you can't figure out. It will tell you the answer. Right, Frank? You're smiling. Won't it tell you? It will give you the answer. It will give you the answer. Don't say no. You know it does. 
What does it say? For the secret things belong to God. And the things that he reveals belongs to us. So essentially what the word is saying, look, there are a lot of things that are going on. I'm going to tell you some, and I'm going to explain some of it. But there's an enormous amount of stuff that's going on. I am simply not going to let you know about it for various reasons, one of which is you will not be able to get it because you're not in a place in a fallen world with a fallen mind to be able to comprehend and appreciate who I am and what I'm doing. There's a limitation to us, so God keeps us in the dark, if you would, about probably 99.9999999999999 things about himself and about what he's doing. But the incy-bency thing that we know about is enough that God has given to us to be saved and to enjoy him forever. Amen? Amen? So let's rather than trying to calculate and figure out and criticize and critique God in all these areas that we don't get, let's make sure that we're standing on solid ground of thanking him for the thing that we do get. We get forgiveness at the cross. By grace have we been saved through faith. Amen? So we've been progressing through the tabernacle from the outside being rejected apart from God. And then we begin to come in. We enter into the curtain, if you would. I say we. You understand what I mean by that. We enter into the curtain, into the outer court. And the first piece of furniture we see is that great brazen altar, that altar upon which the animal is slain and the body is burned. So we see the shedding of blood. And we see the fury of the wrath of God, the burning of the body of the animal, indicative of the pouring out of the wrath of God. Then the next piece of furniture we come to is that great laver. Remember that great washing bowl, if you would, where the priests, in order to go into the holy place, the most holy place, the tabernacle itself, must be cleansed as to his regenerative work, the work of God, regenerating, recreating him, regeneration, regenesis, recreation, a new genesis. Let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. <clears throat> regeneration is God's work of recreating us in the image of his own son. And so after the death of the animal, now the Holy Spirit regenerates us, washes us, of all the impurity of our sin as far as, its, uh, as far as its implications to God and then washes our feet, if you would, as to our daily sanctification, our daily walking in Christ. Remember in John 13, Jesus says, you don't need to be washed all over the place because you've already been washed by my word. All you need to do is to have your feet cleansed. You've been sanctified by my word, but you need your feet cleansed. Why? Because as we walk the dusty, dirty roads of this world, we're going to get dirt on us. That's going to happen. And so on a regular and daily basis, we are to be going to the Holy Spirit, be sensitive to the work of the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit, the voice of the Holy Spirit as he speaks to us and as he cleanses us and as he washes us so this defilement of the world which has been forgiven is not then stacking up and beginning to cover us over so that the light <clears throat> of the gospel of Christ in us is not covered over by the impurities of the world so that we as the vessel of God are kept bright and clean and clear so that the light of the gospel is able to be maintained in its brilliance in us. 
And then we go into the tabernacle itself. Remember the first room, which is kind of a triangular room. And we see three pieces of furniture. As we stand inside the curtain, what do we see? On the left, we see what? The candelabra or the menorah. Remember the menorah. Seven uh, uh, candles, uh, what do you call them? Shafts, if you would. The central shaft and the three on each side. Seven, the completed work of God. The central staff, representative of the Lord Jesus himself, and that which comes out from him. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches, you see. From me you receive all of the sustenance of life. I am the light of the world. And then he says, let your light, because you're the light of the world, let your light so shine before men in Matthew 5, 16. You remember that. And so we have the light, the light of God. And on the right-hand side we have the table of showbread remember the 12 loaves of bread each one representing one of the tribes of Israel what does that mean that the whole presence of God to feed his people is represented there that Jesus is the bread of life that the word of God is the bread of life so that our sustenance and our feeding and our provision everything we need for life and godliness second Peter says has already been what given to us and then in front of the curtain that leads into the most holy place is the altar of what? Incense. And you remember, we are to be a holy fragrance to God in our praying and our living and our praising and in our obedience. That goes up before God as a holy fragrance. It is the table of intercession. You remember last week we talked about Jesus being intercessing before, uh, before God on our behalf. Hebrews 7 25. For he ever intercedes. For he ever intercedes. There is a man in the glory <clears throat> who has borne each one of us in himself to the cross as to our sin and defilement and condemnation. And in his payment, he has paid the full price that each one of us deserved. Amen. And on our behalf, he dies and is buried. So that in the very sight of God and in the very understanding of God and the purpose of God, we, our sin, has been paid for. Remember, sin always is paid for, either by the unbeliever in his own body forever or by the believer in the body of Jesus. Amen? Sin is always paid for. So we can never say, I didn't have to pay for my sin. Sin has been paid for. So that in his resurrection, we also are resurrected in him. So as he eternally remains before the presence of the throne of God, in the throne of God, we are there being maintained forever. Not as God's innocent people, but as God's eternally forgiven, not guilty, justified people. So that as long as this man remains in the heavens before God's face himself we remain with him so what is our security <clears throat> my security is not my faith my security is not anything of and about me or about what I've done or what I shouldn't have done or what I will do our security absolutely totally and forever is in the person of this man who has accomplished everything of the will of God that we should be God's eternal family. 
That's our security. And so this morning we go into the most holy place called the Holy of Holies and we enter through the curtain. And when we get in there, there are two pieces of furniture which we'll talk about in a moment, which you see up on the wall here, a picture of them. There is the chest, the Ark of the Covenant, and then there is a lid on top of it which has the two cherubim with outstretched wings pointing to one another. So let's talk about that. So now this morning in our study, we're coming into the innermost sanctuary of the tabernacle. This is the room from which the tabernacle was constructed. The entire activity of the tabernacle, of the priesthood, of the festivals, all of it revolves around this particular room. This room is the heart of what God is doing upon the earth to save his people. And in this room, there are two pieces of furniture. The Ark of the Covenant, or is sometimes called the Ark of the Testimony. You'll see that in Exodus a lot. Take the Ark of the Testimony, the Ark of the Testimony. So it is the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of the Testimony. Those two terms are used interchangeably. Although there are other terms for the Ark, those two would probably be the, the two most predominant ter uh, terms. The Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat. So let's talk about the Ark of the Covenant first. You will see this outline in Exodus 25, 10 to 23. The Ark of the Covenant was a golden chest. Remember, it's constructed of acacia wood overlaid with gold, pure gold inside and outside. It's a golden chest. And inside the chest are located three contents or three, uh, it, it contains three things. It has the tablets of the law. Remember when Moses went up and received the law on the first time that God summoned Moses up? He summons him, Moses up to himself five times in Exodus. Remember, he summons Moses up to himself, and he gives him the law, and God actually with his own finger writes that law. Remember, Moses returns, and then there is the song, the dancing, the music, the sound that is heard. Remember when Moses is descending from the mountain. And halfway down, Moses comes, and he, hear, and he sees Joshua. Joshua's waiting there for him. <clears throat> and Moses says, you know, that's, I hear that song. I hear that music. I hear that noise. I hear that celebration, you know. And Joshua says, hmm, I, I wonder what that is, you know. It, 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 maybe it's this, that, and the other. Moses knows what it is. And, and here's something I've said this before. It is not wrong in fact, it's probably becoming absolute essential for life today to be depending upon our electronic devices for information, okay? But here's what we better make sure we do as a people of God. We better make sure we're in the face of God long enough to know what's going on in our own lives and around us, to know the Word of God to be ready to face the world every time we wake up in the morning, to be dressed with, what word do I want, uh, uh, to know things. I, I forgot my word, it starts with the D. Discernment, to be dressed with discernment, to be dressed with God's power, to be dressed with God's purpose. We need to know what's happening outside. So when we hear the noise of that world, whatever that noise is being played, Whatever the music is, <clears throat> we can discern in our spirits by the presence of God in us and having spent time with Him in His Word, in prayer, in walking with Him, we know what that music, what that noise is. 
so we won't be captured by and overcome by it. Moses said, it's a song of sin. It's sin in the camp. So remember, and he comes down, and what does he do? He breaks the tablets. And so he is summoned up again into the mountain, and this time he writes the, on the tablets. This is a second giving of the law or whatever. So these are the unbroken tablets. These are the tablets that are inside the Ark of the Covenant. Also, Aaron's rod, the authority of Aaron. We won't go into the detail, but you remember when there was a rebellion in Numbers. And Korah and 250 of the elders said, hey, look, Moses, you had the Holy Spirit. We had the Holy Spirit. Who do you think we are? We can lead as well as you do. You know, we, we know God. We have the word. I mean, why do you always have to? You know, there was this jealousy, this competition of whatever it is. And remember what I, I've shared this before, but it's in the word. What was Moses' reaction when this rebellion against his own authority came? What, what happened? What did he do? He didn't call an elders meeting, Bill, did he? He didn't call for the elders. He didn't call for a church meeting. The first thing he did was what? Moses fell to the ground on his face for fear. Because you see, these folks were rebelling not against Moses, but against the will of God to use Moses as his leader. And so this established, this rod established, God says, I'll tell you, I'll show you who's in charge here. All you guys put your staffs in the ground. Tomorrow morning when we get up, the staff that buds, you know, that has all these vines and so on, that's the staff. That's my man. So they get up, guess what? Aaron's staff is budded, all the others are not. And the Lord moved through with great indignation and dealt with the issue of rebellion. God's authority. And then the golden pot of manna. Remember, God's faithful provision would be put in here too. The manna that would fall in the wilderness. You have that in Hebrews 9, 4. He tells you that. The ark is first mentioned here in Exodus chapter 25. And it's mentioned throughout the Old Testament, but then it's mentioned in the New Testament is very scanty. And, but the last mention is in Revelation eleven nineteen. Then God's temple in heaven was open, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. And so we have the ark of the covenant seen within the temple of God in Revelation. So it starts in Exodus, and the ark of the covenant, which is again exemplary of the presence of God, is all the way until we get to Revelation. And then there's something about the ark of the covenant is seen within his temple that I think I put that scripture down. I want to wait until I think I get to it today or next week about that. Now let's talk about the mercy seat. The mercy seat is the lid. Remember, the ark of the covenant is a, a chest without a top. So the mercy seat is the lid which is on top of the Ark of the Covenant, and it has two figures of the cherubim with outstretched wings facing one another. Exodus 25, 21. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the Ark. Now, what was the significance of this Ark mercy seat? What is significant about this? It, or they, you may refer to them as one piece of furniture or two pieces of furniture, whatever. It was the place of God's fellowship with His people through his mediator, Moses. This is the location. This is the seat, if you would, of God's earthly throne. This is the throne from which God spoke to Moses and gave direction to the people through his mediator, Moses. Exodus 25, 22. 
there where the ark of the covenant a mercy seat on top you know above the mercy seat i will meet with you and from above the mercy seat from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the covenant or the ark of the testimony i will speak with you now why did the lord choose to meet and speak from the ark and the mercy seat why did he do that could he have done it any other way he was showing that his ability to fellowship with his fallen people was a result of his justice first being satisfied. What justice? What justice? What has happened that causes God to build the Ark of the Covenant? What has transpired to cause God to create the tabernacle in the wilderness what, what what's happened we know what's happened what's happened sin has come in and has irrevocably broken the relationship of sonship and the fellowship of sonship with god sin has broken that relationship and as a result of that god is a god of justice he is a righteous god you remember the gospel is the revelation of the righteousness of God. Remember that? Romans 1, 17. For in it, in the, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And so God is righteous. He can't sweep even one sin one time under the rug. He cannot ignore even the simplest and the smallest sin. Even the simplest and the smallest sin must be judged by the fury of the wrath of God. Now, how many times have I said this? One sin, one time, by one man, caused the entire cosmos to be under the judgment of God. One sin, one time, by one man. And as a result of that, God must act justly. If he doesn't act justly, he is contrary to himself. And so what must happen? The soul that sins must what? Die. In the day that you eat of it. Remember that in Genesis 2, 17? In the day that you eat of this. In other words, the day that you sin. You what? Will surely die. And we've talked about what that means. It first means that there is a separation from God. It continues, the, it is a separation that begins because of sin, and now we are born into a separated relationship with God. We are born disconnected, if you would, from God. And then it's not only a separation from God, but then it is a payment in our own bodies for of the wrath of God so that the justice of God is poured out upon sin or the sinner forever why forever because any sin even one sin even one sin is an affront against this being who is an eternal being and so when one sin is directed against this eternal being that affront that rebellion becomes an eternal rebellion and as a result of that, it requires, if justice is to be satisfied, the eternal punishment of that eternal affront 
of that one sin committed in time. It requires that. God can't just slap you around the face a little bit and say, there, now I punished you. It requires something much greater than that. And so the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat, the lid, it's the place where God meets in fellowship with his fallen people first. The result of his justice being satisfied so that his mercy could be poured out in his ministering presence. That's what we see here. You see, the ark was God's throne of judgment. Remember the tablets of the law. The soul that sins shall die. And then the mercy seat is the throne of his mercy. And so you have combined here the justice and the mercy of God in these two pieces of furniture. God's judgment against his people's sin was assuaged or put aside when the atoning blood of the sacrifice, and we'll go into this much more detail in a little while, when the atoning blood of the sacrifice was sprinkled on the mercy seat by the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement. We see that in Leviticus 16. So that God's justice is satisfied so that God's mercy can be poured out. So first of all, justice must be satisfied, and then mercy can be poured out. So what does this Ark of the Covenant mercy seat say about Christ? Remember what we said, everything about the tabernacle, everything about the tabernacle, there is so much detail in there that we haven't gone into and that I, I would not understand. I don't know how long it would take me to read and study this. I don't think we're ever going to get it all. There is so much detail, so many particulars in this entire construction and the activity here. But every bit of it has something to say about God's Christ, his Messiah, the person and the work of Jesus. So what does the ark and what does the mercy seat say about Christ? Well, it spoke of the twofold work of Christ. The twofold work of Christ at the cross in satisfying the justice of God. And you've seen that word before. I think, did Evan put that word in your, uh, in your propitiation? You had to be careful how you say it because you can spit real fast on this. Propitiation. First of all, the justice of God is satisfied, propitiation. And then the mercy of God is applied, expiation. You have this before you. Do you remember one time, several, a couple of years ago, we taught a little bit about this, and, I, and the Lord gave me, wow, what a good symbol or a good, uh, uh, whatever, uh, visible uh, uh, decoration of it. It was a cross. And the up and down, remember, up and down, propitiation. And then the arms of the cross from side to side, expiation. So propitiation, first of all, Jesus' twofold work. First dealt with the issue of sin as to God, and then dealt with the issue of sin as to us. He first dealt with the sin issue as to God. Therefore, allowing that work to apply to us. Do we see that? We must make sure we get this right. Because you see, the burden of the cross is not about me or you. The burden of the cross and the horror and the shock 
of the cross has to do with Jesus as God's sin-bearing lamb as he faces the removal of the fellowship of the Father which he has experienced for all eternity and then faces the fury of the justice of God against our sin on our behalf. That's the burden of the cross. That's what shook Jesus to the core in Gethsemane. That's what caused him to sweat great drops of blood. That's what caused him, as Mark says, he fell to the ground and he kept falling to the ground. That was what was draining him of his physical energy and ability to even walk and stammering around and so on. Why? Because you see, he was facing and he was coming to a realization more and more. I know what's coming. I'm going ahead with it. But then when he gets in the garden, all of a sudden, in some way, the Holy Spirit begins to open to Jesus' mind and heart something of the depth of what he's going to face at that cross that he may have known theologically, but that he was beginning to know personally. And this was undoing this man. No wonder this man said three times, what? Father, if there be any other way, please let it be done. But nevertheless, if it's your will for me to drink this cup of wrath, I'm going to drink it. You see, he wasn't trying to get out from beatings and the physical torture of on a cross. It was the fury of the wrath of God. It was bearing the justice of God on our behalf because of our sin. Propitiation. In order that the mercy of God could be dispensed. Propitiation is the satisfaction of God's justice, of his wrath, through an acceptable blood sacrifice. I don't know if I put blood sacrifice in your notes. I should have. Not through an acceptable sacrifice, period. Through an acceptable blood sacrifice. Without the shedding of blood, what does Hebrews say? There is no what? Remission of sin. Unless I see the blood, remember in Exodus, I will, I'm sorry, if I, when I see the blood, what? I will what? Pass over. I will judge the animal who died on your behalf so that you may not bear the physical judgment of my wrath so that you may be able to be set free from the rule of this Satan, of this Pharaoh on earth. You see the first instance of this issue of the necessity of blood sacrifice. Where do we see the first activity of this other than Gen Genesis 3.21? Remember the animal that was stripped. I mean, that was, uh, uh, what do you call it, skinned. What happens in chapter 4 of Genesis? Abel and Cain bring two sacrifices, one each. What does Abel bring? An animal. He sheds the blood of an animal. What does Cain bring? Asparagus. You know, I can understand. <laughs> he brings asparagus and broccoli. And what happens? 
the Lord accepts Abel's because of faith. Hebrews 11 tells you that. By faith, Abel, Abel, what is it? Abel, what's this boy's name? Abel offered a better sacrifice than his brother Cain. What was the superiority of it? Nick, it was a blood sacrifice. What was wrong with Cain's? It was not a blood sacrifice. He should have known. And so immediately, in order for there to be an atonement, a satisfaction, a propitiation, the putting away of the satisfaction of God's wrath, a blood sacrifice has to be made. Expiation means that then sin is driven away. Let me try to get through some of this anyway today. I'm a little slower than I anticipate being. On the Day of Atonement, and this is from Leviticus 16, you need to underline Leviticus 16 and make sure you know something about Leviticus 16. I think it is the very heart, the very heart of what is happening in Leviticus. Leviticus 16, two goats are display, displayed the justice and mercy of God. First of all, the first goat, Leviticus 16, 7, and he, the priest, the high priest, shall take, or Aaron, the two goats and present them before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Remember? The doorway at the tent of meeting, before the uh, outside, right before you come into the uh, outer court. Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat, Azarel. That means the goat of departure. If yours says A-Z-A-R-A-L, it means the goat of departure. It means scapegoat. People say, what's that? What's that? It's the word for scapegoat. Two goats, one for the Lord and one as a scapegoat. The first goat was slain at the base of brazen altar and the blood taken into the most holy place and sprinkled on the mercy seat seven times by the high priest. That's the day of atonement. So that God's wrath because of sin would be put away for another year. So his wrath would be satisfied for another year. That is the propitiatory sacrifice, propitiation, or the atoning sacrifice, I think, that some uh, translations say nowadays, the atoning sacrifice. Bill, is that correct? Does yours say atoning sacrifice? I think they changed that in some of the translations, if I can remember. Propitiation. I like that word because it causes people to kind of sit up and ask what that means. Then Leviticus 16, 9, and Aaron shall offer the goat on which the lot of the Lord fell and make a sin offering. There he shall kill the goat, remember the brazen altar, of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil. Remember the holy place into the veil, into the most holy place. And do with his blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement, satisfaction, you see, for the holy place because of the uncleanliness of the people of Israel and because of their transgression, all their sins. So you see what's happening with the first goat. What is God saying here? What is God saying here about Christ? Hebrews 9.11. Again, Hebrews 9 is an exposition of Leviticus 16. Hebrews 9.11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest, and we're going to talk about the priesthood, of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, remember the tent, the tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. And what was that tent? His own body, you see, his own body. He entered once for all. What does that mean? 
there is no more blood shedding, period. No matter what anybody, any church, any doctrine tells us, there is no more continuing blood shedding. Amen? No more. If you don't know your verse, if you don't know your Bible, that's one place where you can go to show someone what does this mean once for all? What does that mean? When did that happen? At the cross, John 19, 30. It is completed. It is what? Finished. Once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus, thus securing an eternal redemption, an eternal purchase of God's people from the domination of Satan back to the purposes of God. What was paid? Kenneth Copeland and ilk people like that say Satan was paid. I won't make one of my noises on that one. What was paid? God's justice. You see, God owed Satan nothing. Ain't nothing God owed him, owes him, or will ever owe Satan at all. Nothing. That is a satanic uh, doctrine to make Satan appear to be somebody in the purposes of God, you know, as far as accomplishing. Jesus paid the price that God required for the forgiveness of sin. That's the atoning price. 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus, God's sin, what? A son, what? Cleanses us from how much? All sin. Let me go through this next one. The second goat was the one on which the priest laid his hands, confessing, transferring, confessing the sins of the people following the sacrifice of the first. First goat is sacrificed, the blood is sprinkled, the priest comes out of the holy place, and then he lays his hands on this second goat. And then when the priest confesses or transfers the sins that have been forgiven because of the wrath of God being satisfied, then the activity of that penalty is physically shown upon that goat which, upon which the priest lays his hand, and then that goat is sent way, way, way out into the wilderness. This is expiation, the putting away of sin, the removal of sin's pollution from us. Amen? First the wrath, propitiation, then the removal of sin from me, from you, in order that we can become God's cleansed people. Leviticus 16, 21, And Aaron shall lay both hands of, on the head of the live goat and confess over, all, over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And he shall lay upon them upon the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. The goat shall bear on itself all the, their iniquities. You see it? Bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary lamb, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. Now, bear on itself. How many of you remember 2 Corinthians 5.21? For our sake God made Christ to be sin, a sin bearer. Not one who was personally polluted with sin, but one who judicially receives the sentence of sin upon himself. Himself being continually and ever innocent, but becoming judicially sinful. So he can carry in our place on, on our behalf our sin out into the wilderness so it will never be before the face of God anymore. As to its penalty, 
as to his pollution, as to his payment, it's been sent away. How many of you remember this word from Jeremiah 31, 36? For I will forgive the iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Amen? That's expiation. Why? Because of propitiation, that's possible. Psalm 103, 12, you've heard this. As far as the east is from the west, so far does God remove our transgressions from us. You see, this is what's happening in the ark and on the mercy seat. See, what is the instruction of the New Testament about this practice? Listen to Hebrews 6.1. Hebrews 6.1 is the third statement of a warning that God is giving to those who are thinking about being tempted to repudiate Christ. Forget Jesus, I'm going back to Judaism. Forget him, I'm going back to Judaism. And this is one of the reasons why they shouldn't forget. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. What is the elementary doctrine of Christ? Those foreshadowing activities and practices of the Old Testament. That's the elementary. Those are the things that instructed us about Christ until he comes in fullness. And therefore, we don't need those elementary instructions anymore. We leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead, dead works and of faith toward God. We're not going to redo this. And of instruction about washings, the labor. About the laying on of hands, Leviticus 16. Remember the scapegoat. The resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. We're not going to deal with this anymore. We're going to accept what Jesus did and move forward. If we leave Jesus, we're going back into a system which God has completed and no longer has any life for us, no longer has any ability to save us, to forgive us. So this double work of propitiation and expiation tells us that the entire Mosaic law and the entire sacrificial system was gathered up and was fulfilled in one man, Jesus Christ, at the cross. Romans 4.25. He was delivered up for our trespasses. Remember, he was delivered up for our trespasses. He died on our behalf. And then the rest of Romans 4.25, and he was raised for our justification in Jesus resurrection God declares us as not guilty why because God Jesus comes before God with the blood and he presents the blood before God you see this in Hebrews 9 it is an acceptable sacrifice and everyone who is in Christ at that moment God not only accepts what Jesus did but he accepts it as a pertaining to everyone who in Christ. So that the declaration of this is in the resurrection where those who are in Christ, not yet even having been born again or even born, can then begin to receive the good or the reality or the application of what Jesus accomplished at the cross, bringing the blood into the holy place, having it accepted to God, returning to earth and giving the Holy Spirit, remember, to us. Why? Because propitiation and expiation, the payment of the justice, and the putting away of our sin as a result. You see, Christ as a man, as God's man, kept all the law and then died to pay the full penalty of our sins so that all that was against us 
also died and was buried with him in order that we could have eternal life and walk in newness of life. Amen? Uh, next week, Gene and I will be at Christ Community Church. Uh, we won't have class next week, so what I would ask you to do is perhaps come in and spend the time in prayer next week. That would be a wonderful thing. And then the next class that we'll be getting back in August 2nd. I think August 2nd is the first Sunday of August. I may be wrong about that. I think that's the Sunday, August 2nd. I'd like you to prepare yourselves for that class by reading Romans 3, verses 23 to 24, 23, 24, and 25, I think it is, uh, because Paul's statement there that we're going to talk about applies to what we're saying. I want to go into that, the explication of those verses and apply it to what we've already talked about this morning. Thank you so much.